Hello and welcome to Business Without the podcast brought to you by Ori Clark, straight-talking financial and legal advice since 1935. My name's Dominic Frisby, and alongside me today is my co-host and partner at Ori Clark, Andrew Ori, who is on a mission to bring the fascinating business stories that the firm's many clients are living to a wider audience with this podcast. And uh, if you like what we do here, please do rate and review us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever it is you listen to podcasts. And remember to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, uh, and or Facebook at biz without BS, B-I-Z without BS. Now, so let's say hello to Andy. How are you doing, Andy? Who is our guest today? And what are we going to be talking about? Thank you, Dominic. Excellent to hear from you. Today, we're joined by my very good friend and client, Luke Sequeira, hailing from the beautiful shores of Goa, India. With a background in computer science and engineering, uh, Luke's been a serial entrepreneur uh, since his mid-teens, founding a number of different companies, his latest being Numatic, which builds apps and APIs that enable financial transactions for mobility and logistics in India. Uh, So we're an excellent company, Dom. Luke, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Andy. Happy to be on board. So we're going to start off right at the beginning, Luke. Uh, What was your first job? So my first job, I think my first job was uh, running errands for my grandma, picking up bread from the local baker and making a small margin on it with her approval. (laughs) I was going to say, did she know about that? (laughs) <laughs> I had to add the last part to clarify, yeah. but yes, uh, that was my first job, but my my first and only real job, I only had one job, one actual job in my life, and that was with um, a company out in Vancouver that did um, real estate development. I actually had a bunch of wonderful people working with me out there, and I did digital marketing for them. And were you doing that from India or from Vancouver? I, I used to live in Vancouver, so I, I lived in Vancouver back then. This is in... Um, 2012, 13, around that time. So I lived in Vancouver. I did a lot of hiking and, and trekking and just spending time in the, in the mountains. And I had this day job uh, with this fantastic bunch that was very understanding about all of these aspects of life. And so, yeah, it was, it was a good time. Vancouver, the great home of the unscrupulous mining promoter. <laughs> Not many people know that, but that's where they all live. Right. What was your worst job? I think working for myself initially was probably my worst job when I began consulting. I realized I was a terrible boss with myself. I was I was too uh, difficult on myself, and um, I think I pushed myself way too hard at a at a very early age. And um, so I think that was probably my worst job, given that my environment was terrible. The people I worked with horrible, just me. Mm. <laughs> that would be my worst job. Yeah, I expected too much of myself, and I expected too much of people. I, I think that was what it was, and, and I operated more like a computer. So I, I had very specific and deterministic expectations of people and, and work. And it took me, I think, about three or four years to realize that um, people are not computers, and you know you have to have a fault tolerance for for the output. Uh, it actually took me time to realize that I, I wasn't, that, I didn't realize that at an early stage. I like that term fault tolerance. That's a very scientific way of looking at describing the shortcomings of others. I, I wasn't a very social kid. I was very introverted and I, I'm still quite introverted. I'm, I'm confident but introverted. And uh, I wasn't confident when I was younger. And so I didn't have much practice dealing with people. And uh, a lot of how I dealt with people came from what I learned in in, in computing, basically, or in uh, building software, you know, 
very specific expectations and and very deterministic outcomes. Uh, there was not much space for um, error in the way I saw things. I, I was making mistakes all the time. Don't get me wrong, but I, I didn't see those things in myself. So I I thought I was doing a fantastic job, and I couldn't understand why everybody else wasn't. You know. And when did you decide that working for other people wasn't for you? I mean, was that a conscious decision you made, or did it just sort of happen? No, I think I've always been. I remember being a kid and thinking to myself, like, I want to be an inventor. I want to invent things and I want to sell those things <laughs> and, uh, you know, like be my own boss. I had an, uh, my, my mom is very entrepreneurial, uh, my grandmother as well. And my, I have an uncle who basically ran a, a paint manufacturing company. And I was just amazed when I'd go to his factory, just looking at all of this, this, you know, as a kid, looking at these giant tubs of paint being produced, it's a magical experience. And my uncle had a little office above the factory with a big glass window that he could look down on the factory on. And so I always wanted to be that guy. I mean, I no longer see it that way. Like, I don't want to look down on the people working for me. But <laughs> when you're a kid, this is a very interesting thing. All of these bright colors moving around, machines, loud noises. And, you know, you get a chance to observe everything. And yeah, it, it, was, it was cool. So I always wanted that. I wanted to have some kind of machine that I designed generating things. And um, I'm doing that today. So, Do you think Indians generally are quite entrepreneurial. Because, I mean, I see so many Indians who, who who came to the UK in maybe in the 70s and 80s, and they set up their family shops, their little family businesses. And they're basically, for a long time, they were the only retail businesses that were able to compete with supermarkets. And they did it by staying open at all times. And, you know, if mum and dad were asleep, then maybe one of the kids would run the shop. And, you know, they did, you know, Thatcher was a great champion of small businesses. And the Indians were sort of, in many ways, very great realizers of, of that mentality. Is that Indians generally, or did it require a certain amount of entrepreneurial spirit to have come here in the first place? So in other words, is that just the ones who came here, if you see what I mean? Yeah, I, I used to think that Indians are very entrepreneurial, but I now think that immigrants are very entrepreneurial. So if you find British immigrants in the US, for example, they, are high, they have a higher likelihood of doing stuff than you know they would back home. And I, I, I think that Indians in general, there is a lot of entrepreneurship because there's not too much opportunity. I think the, the conditions for entrepreneurship are, are strong in India because there aren't many opportunities out here. And for an immigrant going to the place, a place like the UK, when you don't have a network that can offer you employment easily, uh, those are good conditions for entrepreneurship because then you start becoming creative for what you can create. Like I'm basically a Londoner and I've never left and I hate myself for never having left. And I'm sort of moderately entrepreneurial. But whenever I travel, I can just straight away just see things, you know, this place hasn't got this and it needs this. And there's something inspiring about being in other places anyway. And so it's partly to have the get up and go to become an immigrant in the first place suggests a certain amount of entrepreneurialness. But then when you get there, as you say, you don't have the same network. So that that's one thing. But secondly, just the inspiration of being in another country inspires something entrepreneurial. I think so, yeah. I, I think being in a, in, a, in a foreign environment, basically we miss the water when it's gone, right? And so when you're in, when you're in a new environment, um, you notice what is not there from what you're, what you're familiar with, you know? And I, and I think it can go both ways. So you can be a cranky person and, and complain about it, or you can be an entrepreneur and do something about it, you know? So I think, I think there's still some genetic or, or some kind of environmental makeup to those that take advantage of those gaps. But I think, yes, um, uh, if you don't have many opportunities, at some point, you're going to start finding opportunities. Mm. And so tell us about your first business. What was your first business? 
Yeah, my, my first business, the first business where I actually had a business plan was basically doing soil testing. So uh, the idea was, um, I, I used to love science and, and I had this book on the environment and it, it taught you how to test the soil in your garden. So you, it's not very complicated. You, you, you put a bunch of soil into a plastic bottle, you add water to that bottle, you shake it up, you leave it around for five days, 10 days, 15 days, and you measure the sedimentation and, and the, 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 the height of each layer. And that gives you the percentage distribution of the different types of soil in your, in your ground. Okay, so you can, you can see the silt and you can see the, the rocks and everything else. And from that, presumably, you can decide what crops you should grow or whether you should even grow crops at all. Or Yeah, exactly. And uh, so I decided to, um, I lived in a village, I still live in a village, Saligaon. And uh, I thought, uh, this is great. There's a lot of farmers around here. They have a lot of uh, land. They have a lot of soil. There's a lot of soil testing. This is a gigantic opportunity. Uh, I, I didn't realize at the time, but I was thinking of TAM basically back then. This is a <laughs> large market for me, relatively speaking, as a kid. Um, so I went around trying to uh, basically sell soil testing and um, I did a fantastic job of reaching out to people. I, I was quite bold and I, I got a lot of uh, interesting conversations, um, but I got zero customers because these farmers have been farming that land for more than 5,000 years. This is India. They don't need to test that soil. It does exactly the same thing every year. <laughs> so they already knew their soil. Yeah, they already knew their soil. Uh, interestingly enough, this this came back to me in 2018. I was in London doing um, Entrepreneur First. I was a I was in the cohort in, in, in winter and uh, I remember they had this onboarding talk and they, they spoke about not getting distracted by the TAM of an opportunity and also looking at uh, whether it's a hair on fire problem, you know, because it, it might look like a big opportunity, but if it's not a hair on fire problem, customers likely won't make purchase decisions quick enough for you to grow. And I'm like, whoa, I wish I knew about the hair on fire problem when I was like 12 years old. I would have not gone and chased that opportunity down. <laughs> mm -hmm. It wasn't a hair on fire problem for them. So this, your soil testing thing was you were 12? Yeah. So the fact that it didn't work, you still had the sort of fallback of your parents. Well, so uh, to be clear, I was actually already supporting my family indirectly because um, my, my mom was basically raising us um, uh, single-handedly at the time. And um, we made uh, our spare income from uh, two things, uh, catering and teaching. So we do tuitions basically for kids out here. Um, and I'd help out with maths and English. Uh, my mom would uh, do the bulk of it. And then we do a lot of catering. So everything from making, uh, making and bottling pickles and masalas and cakes and marzipan and all kinds of things. So I was the accountant. I was helping out with this. And so were my siblings as well. So all of us were very involved. Even as early as we were five or six, I think, uh, we were part of the, the, the mix doing these kinds of things. We just grew up with that. It, it never felt like I was in business or that I was going to do business. It just felt very natural to find ways to generate an income. Yeah. I mean, Goa is a peculiar place in a way, isn't it? I mean, it's for yeah. India, you know, obviously it's history, it's Portuguese, more, more, you know, more intertwined than, than British. But also it's just the influx of international people there. I mean, has, has the international tourists had a sort of big impact on how you've, you know, the businesses you've got involved in or, or you know, you, the fact you've lived internationally? Yeah. It's the first time I'm, I'm, I'm tying those uh, two dots together. But yes, uh, what I realized is that um, from a very early age, I always wanted to do something uh, global or at least I don't, I don't think I thought of it as global, but I wanted to do it in, in multiple countries or multiple places because I met so many people from uh, different parts of the world, a, a lot of people from the UK um, and Germany, etc. And so I was exposed to all these ideas, a lot of technology, uh, you know, 
Um, I got this talking watch as a gift uh, from uh, a son of a friend of my mom's once. And these things blew my mind because we didn't see these things in the shops in, in India. So I, this is before the internet, right? So I had a context that there was a lot of interesting stuff going on in some other place, but I don't have access to it. And I, and I wanted to find a way to get access to it. And um, I, I pursued opportunities that got me closer to that. I'm, I don't think I'm a natural programmer or a, or a computing professional, but I think I'm more of a product person. But I, I got drawn to computers and the internet because of the opportunity around basically being able to access such opportunities, which came from, yes, the, the nature of, of, of the people that you meet in Goa. I mean, I guess, uh, I guess through this sort of uh, uh, assemblization, you end up in sort of, like most businesses, in software development now. And I... I think back to you talking about, I think it was your, your uncle who used to sort of run a manufacturer of paint on, and it, it, you know, yeah. in the past, and, and I'm sort of relating this to, you know, how you have to build teams, you know, in the past, you know, you would buy a lot of machinery and have people who needed to operate that machinery, but the, the operation of that machinery would be fairly repetitive and perhaps uh, rudimentary. So you could run it like a factory, as the phrase goes, do you know what I mean? And, and yeah. that would make sense. Yeah. Whereas... To, to develop software is pretty complicated, isn't it? I mean, you've got to get different personalities, you know, often quite a sort of strange section of society who are, you know, possibly possibly on some autism spectrum, some of them, you know, or just sort of unusual people who are good coders, and you've got to get them working together. I mean, when you, when you said earlier sort of, or, you know, you inferred that you found you found, you know, doing that difficult. Is it, is, it, is it the nature of the work or has that always been difficult, if you see what I'm asking? Yep. I think writing software is easy. Software is logic and it's, it's not complicated. It gets complicated when you want to write software for lots of people, by lots of people. I think that's when it gets complicated, you know, when, you, when more than one person's working on it. Because as soon as you have more than one person, that's when the egos and opinions and, and all the subjective matter starts to show up in the equation. And I think the bulk of what a software company does is reduce the amount of conflict between the people building the software, whether it's through smoother workflows for getting the work done, whether it's better understanding what the actual end result the customer wants, uh, reducing the um, workflow or the effort that a end user needs to go through to actually carry out a transaction. And, and that's the thing that you need to put into. So the bulk of software development is actually psychology. It's a psychology of the people you're working with and make it easy to work with them and the psychology of the end user. And so I think where it worked out for me was that I've been very interested in the psychology part always. And so that came naturally. The other parts, I mean, today it's writing software, tomorrow it might be, I don't know what, what's the future, but um, I, I, think, I think psychology is, is the core of business. And I think tying back to better business or ethical business, it comes down to respecting the psychologies of the people you're dealing with and you know, keeping that, uh, taking that into account in how you, how, you, how you address them and how you address their solutions. Let's talk about how you found the um, transition from being a, a startup to an employer. Is that was that hard, or did, did, did I suppose it's a, a gradual thing rather than a sudden thing that happens overnight? Yes, it's, it's definitely a gradual thing. It creeps on you, and then it's very sudden when you realize that it's there. I think the realization is sudden, but the the transition is gradual. And I think it happens in every company. It happens between around 12 to 15 employees to 25 employees, I think that's when the, the change happens. You start to realize suddenly people don't see you as a friend that they're working with. Some people start to see you as uh, a manager or a boss or an owner. And I think the, the hard part is not paying the salaries and, and the bills. That, that's definitely very hard. But I think the hard part is maintaining a human connection with people 
when they cannot see you fully as a human sometimes, you know, because they may carry baggage from previous employers or previous relationships where they see authority as a, as a bad thing. And for a lot of young people that we bring into our company, we're not just hiring them and, and teaching them how to, to write code or how to build products, but we're also unwiring some of the dysfunctional relationships they may have had with authority or teachers or, or parents, you know, that, that is the, the, the difficult part of the transition to being an employer. Which side of the fence are you on? Some people say you shouldn't be friends with your staff. Like there needs to be some distance between the, 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 the boss and, and the employee in order to do things correctly. It's a, it's a bit like sometimes, you know, parents would say that they're, you know, it's about being a parent, not, not being, you know, your, your kid's best friend all the time, you know, uh, having, yeah. having some authority. Which, which side of the argument are you on on that? I think I'm right in the middle because my fundamental understanding of business is that business is a, a set of relationships in which there is a certain level of trust around certain aspects of the, of the relationship. So you may trust that the quality of the product is good, or you may go additional to say you trust also that the payments will be made on time. And you may go additional to trust in addition to this transaction happening, the person will also create future value for you. And, and there's various levels of trust you can have in these relationships. I think where the confusion lies between saying to be a friend or not to be a friend with your employees, it comes from people not knowing how to set the stage to have healthy conflict. And so I, I like being friends with my employees. I'm actually very good friends with my employees. We, we have a motorcycle club together. We hang out together. We do all kinds of fun things together. We basically make sure that we get to know each other really well. And all of this is done under the guide rails of we know how to conflict with each other uh, in a way that... Uh, they can call me out on things. And I, I even practice calling myself out on stuff in front of them. Um, if I'm being egotistical or if I'm being difficult, I may, not, I may not realize it at the time, but I may realize it later and I'll call it out. And so it's become a norm that we can call each other out on things. And so I think we can be friends. And I think it's very powerful to be friends with your team. That's how I'd like to do it with my kids as well one day. And now a quick word from our sponsor. At Ori Clark, we understand that many of our clients want to be better informed about the issues they face, but don't have the time to wade through all of the legalese and accounting jargon to get there. We know that people love our easy-to-read quick guides on the most common problems facing our clients, and if you're here, then you probably like podcasts. So we thought, why not combine the two and make it even easier for people to access the knowledge of our team of multidisciplinary experts? Recently, Dominic Frisby sat down with Juliet Ori and Andrew Thomas to talk about company benefits. Maybe it shouldn't be you saying this, Andrew, but one of the advice that you give is it's often an advantage to use a broker such as yourself, if only because it stops you paying for certain things twice. <laughs> well, I would say that, but <laughs> um, look, it's, it's a minefield. You know, you, you do an internet search on employee benefits and you will be there for days just trying to sift through the myriad of options and providers that are out there. You know, a, a broker can help sift through through all of that information and give you advice. You know, one of my roles is is to work with employers and say, okay, look, let's let's talk about options that are available. What's going to be important to you as the employer? What's going to be a benefit to your staff? You know, what's what are they really going to value? Rather than just you know, throwing a monetary amount at benefits, you know, really target down what what your employees are looking for. You can find our audio quick guides in the resource library at auriclark.com or search for Ori Clark Quick Guides wherever you get your podcasts.
And at this point, let me quickly remind you to give us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or to follow us on Spotify so that you never miss an episode. Just tell us exactly what your business is at the moment. So we exist at the intersection of finance and logistics. Logistics has a lot of financial application requirements, and we make applications and APIs for companies in the logistics world. So we bring, we bring banks and logistics companies together through our technology. To get more specific, for instance, on, on the tolling front, um, tolling on highways and, and roads in India uh, has been digitized. And um, I think India is one of the largest markets in the world for digital tolling. And we make um, applications and, and uh, APIs to help uh, banks uh, deal with their customers in this space. We handle uh, about 600,000 transactions a month on, the, on our platform. And um, we basically enable transactions for logistics. So it's, mm-hmm. it's sort of the oyster card of the road, because yeah. British people yeah, aren't yeah, that yeah. familiar with yeah. tolls. There's, there's one to get I'd into Wales. It, yeah. Fintech, I'd call it, or payments tech. Is that right? Definitely, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's fintech. It's fintech for sure, yeah. I was trying to avoid the buzzword, but yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Since, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like in the UK, I think there's a real failure to recognize just how difficult it is to set up a business and just how much work goes into it. And people who set up their own businesses are almost considered exploiting uh, workers and exploiting other opportunities. And people get very little recognition for the amount of wealth that a new business creates, not just for the owner, but for everyone. And how often it makes life better for the customer of that business. You know, it brings some kind of improvement. Does that same sort of derisory attitude towards entrepreneurialism exist in in India or or is there much greater celebration of the entrepreneurial spirit? I, I think there's much greater celebration of of the entrepreneurial spirit out in, in, in India. Um, I, I think that um, people don't see it as a bad thing if you find ways to create value. You know, so that that's it's nice to have out here. People actually like that. If you find new ways to create value, you've earned your space there. And I think Entrepreneurship in India, India is a strange place because on the one hand, we have this caste system, which hasn't really disappeared. I mean, officially it doesn't exist and, and it's illegal to you know, use it to, um, to think about other people. But in, in reality, when people are getting married, it shows, up, it, it shows up in the way people get seats at engineering colleges based on which caste they're from. At the same time, we have this culture that worships entrepreneurship. So there's a whole... I think the entrepreneurship caste is a different caste altogether, which has got its own rules. And so you can really redefine yourself uh, through entrepreneurship. And um, to be honest, I, I think that that's what most Indians use entrepreneurship for. Like if you, if you think of the, any action having a, a job to be done, I think the job to be done by entrepreneurship is to redefine yourself beyond the original caste. It, it goes, of course, beyond that. But for most people that get in, it's, it's a way to say, uh, I'm better than what you thought I was. Although that being said, I would point out that there are, uh, I don't know what the percentage is in terms of number of entrepreneurs to number of people, but um, I, I have met very hardworking Germans and very hardworking uh, British uh, people in, in the entrepreneurial world. Like a lot of entrepreneurs that I've met who are among the harder working are definitely from the UK and from Germany. You know, uh, I've seen a lot of people push. Um, but in, in India, you don't really have a choice because uh, labor is so cheap that you can have so many people, well, cheap relatively speaking, it's changing now, but you have you can have people working for you all the time and as many as you want if you're a large organization so uh, the act of stuff moving quickly because 
people need those jobs and they're willing to compromise their work-life balance because they need the job as much allows you to have this culture of non-stop work. You know? While as in London, people want to have a drink by 7 p.m. or, or 6 p.m. And, and that I think that's, that's also a fair way. That's actually a better way to live, to have that space and that balance. I think India is changing slowly, not, not across the country because there's, there's many parts of India. There's no one India, but there's definitely um, a strata of India uh, where people value their time with their family and, and COVID has helped out a lot of that as well. Uh, to change that that dynamic of always on all the time. Yeah, I think British obsession with alcohol is one of our biggest weaknesses. <laughs> Leads to all sorts of terrible decision making. What's the what's the hardest thing you do in your job, and and how do you deal with it? Well, a lot of people who are in business, and, and myself included, at one point in my life, got into it for the wrong reasons. Like business is the is the drug you take when you want to basically inflate your importance in society, right? It, it gives you this additional power and influence over people, whether it's one or whether it's 10 or whether it's 10,000, but you, you have this additional influence over people. And that drug does go to people's heads and it did go to my head. And, and I think the hardest part of, of doing business is dealing with others who haven't figured out yet that they're using this as a drug. Because you can drink a great glass of wine and really enjoy the wine, or you can drink it to get drunk and keep drinking it, saying, I'm drinking it because I love the flavor, but actually you're drinking it because you want the effect of the alcohol. I think a lot of people in business are under the influence of business without realizing it. They, they think they're basically creating value and doing these things, but they're basically running on that high. And I, I'm always surprised by sometimes meeting people in, in their 50s and 60s who haven't yet figured out that they're drugging themselves with this power that, and, the, and this effect that they get from influencing others or, or making decisions or, or not being accountable to people. You know? That's the hard part for me. I think, and I think it was a harsh realization when I, when I hit it about three years ago. Literally, it led to depression when I realized, because I always thought I was a good guy. And I just realized one morning that, oh, this is not actually appropriate. You know? That's a really fascinating point. I mean... Mm. What, how how should you run a because I assume you're sort of referring to an addiction of power in a way addiction of I mean money's a necessity but I think you may be more referring to the power it gives you power and status yeah they prove power is like the same as cocaine it's completely addictive for the brain how do you run a business when you're in charge without yeah what do you do then yeah. I've thought a lot about that um, and I actually learned how to do that by running the motorcycle club. So sometime last year, we, we launched a motorcycle club called Go IMC. And um, when you're dealing with these, uh, with, with guys who, you know, are used to a rougher work environment and, and used to being away from home, used to being around a lot of uh, people from a lot of different countries, the trust is lower among them, you know. So if you want to lead a group like that on a motorcycle ride and not get into trouble, you need to have to realize, know how to manage these egos and manage these people. And what I realized was as long as I was calm and didn't like throw my weight around or posture in a manner to show that I'm leading the group or, 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 or my friend Peter who actually leads the rides, as long as we didn't throw our weight around, as long as we didn't do all of the typical posturing that you associate with leadership, nobody was threatened because it's not that people don't trust other people. People don't trust authority. They, they have a lot of broken relationships with authority. And so the insight I've had is if you want to work well with people, do not act like an authority. You can be a guide. You can suggest like this is a good route for us to go to. So to answer the question more specifically, 
remove the signaling of authority. Remove all of the posturing, you know. Change the clothing from, I used to always wear shirts at work and I, I liked to get dressed and, and come into the office. I, I come in in a t-shirt and shorts most times now if I, if I do go out of the office anymore. I lost the big car and, and, you know, you just lose all of these symbols of status that are trying to tell other people that you make so much more or that you are worth so much more. And just be, just be normal. I think that's what it is. For which you have to be able to be willing to give up though. You'd be willing to give up that relative status change, which is hard for a lot of people because they work so hard to buy that status change or that status differential. And you need to throw out the differential. Do you not though, I mean, you can you can remain calm and sit back, but do you not need, you need a passion for the vision. You need to to to, to get people to feel inspired and drive towards something. So... It's yeah. a really interesting point you're making, sort of trying to balance your own ego, I guess, or whatever. But it's still at the same time, you've got to throw a lot of energy into meetings, don't you? And a lot of energy you, into you, lead. lead. You've you got to lead. 100% Andy, 100%. That, that, is the, that is the struggle. Every, like, that's the only thing I think about nowadays. How do I inject that energy into the organization? How, how do you basically release those hormones into the organization? And I think it happens at a, in different ways. So... First is that uh, you become more aware of people's circadian rhythms. You understand which people on your team are, are active at what times of the day. Because if someone's grumpy in the mornings, it's not going to help much if you're going to be all gung-ho when you're talking to him, right? And if someone's more energetic in the evenings, uh, it's not going to help if you are too calm at that point because they want to get moving, they want to get things done. And so what I've learned is that um, you have to be Calm. So calm does not mean low energy, by the way. Calm just means that your energy is, is regulated. So a fast-moving river can, can be calm. You can be on a boat on a fast-moving river in a very calm wave. There's not much turbulence underneath the water. Okay? We move fast. We put a lot of pressure. But you give people space to figure it out for themselves. Like you, don't, you don't push them all the time, basically. You don't batter them all the time. And most importantly, you don't use the act of working with somebody as a means for you to feel better about yourself. Because a lot of what employers or bosses do is they put down the people that they're working with. That is the painful part. That is the troublesome part. That's the, that's the part that people don't like. People like being charged up. People like being energized. People like getting, uh, you know, feeling this drive. Like people, they can feed off of it as well. They can feed off your passion and your energy. But they don't like it when you use that passion and energy to relatively improve your status to theirs. That is the hard part that you got to get rid of. And it happens so naturally. I still, I still do it sometimes. I still do it and I, I have to go back and shamefully apologize for it when it does happen because it's so natural to feel good, you know. As you take that sip, you feel good from the hit of the alcohol in the wine in addition to enjoying the flavors of the wine. So do you believe in transparency, therefore, for all data? Like, do people need to know what the cash flow is? Because, you know, if the company's in the shit, therefore you, need, you don't want to shit on everyone, but you want to say, we got a month. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think there's a balance between giving people all the information and giving people the information that is usable by them for, for what they need to do, okay? Uh, and I think I err on the side of giving more information than is necessary. So we definitely let people know our situation, cash flow, et cetera. Our team has stuck through us through many tough times. But I also don't subscribe to the idea of make every piece of information known because that assumes that all actors are rational actors, which is not true. That is economic theory, you throw it out of the window. All actors are not rational actors. And when you have irrational actors who do not fully understand why one person may be getting paid more. For example, I might have um, a person on my team who's 40 years old who has four kids and he's a software developer and he may be as skilled as someone who's 25 years old. For whatever reasons, the 25-year-old is, is, is as skilled as him. But I might pay him 
50% or 60% more because he's got kids. I'm accounting for that factor. But the 25-year-old may not recognize that and find it's unfair that he gets paid less than this person at 40, right? So now I can spend time explaining to every single person why something is this way, why, why, these, why these imbalances exist. Or I can choose to recognize that all actors won't recognize it. As long as my ethics and, and my um, values are aligned in how I'm operating, it's my company, I get to call how much information I want to share, I don't want to share. I don't think there's any rules around this. I think it's, it's your personal choice of how you see fairness and how much information allows the team to recognize that fairness. What are you most excited about for the future of your business, Luke? Uh, I'm actually really excited about the idea that um, the enterprise is becoming more like the, the consumer environment. The fact, business is becoming more human. Let me put it that way. Business is becoming more human. People and, and, and enterprises are, are increasingly getting the opportunities to work with the people that they want to work with rather than just work with people for the sake of, of generating new business. It's not happening all over the place, but it's definitely happening in many pockets, especially in places like California and, and Berlin and, and in London. Increasingly, you'll find agencies, um, freelancers, uh, and even SaaS companies choosing which customers they take on and, and customers choosing the suppliers that they take on, not just based on the value that the, the deal can bring in, but also whether there's overall an alignment between the players. I, I love that part of our business now. And if there was one thing in the world you could change over the next five years, what would it be? Yeah, I, th I think it ties back to um, the idea that um, if you look at where business comes from, uh, traders, traders knew each other, they, they, they trusted each other, they, they trusted the... Uh, the sheepskins that they were trading or they trusted the, the, the milk that was being sold. And I think trust played a huge role in, in business. And somewhere along, other mechanisms came along to, to augment, uh, not augment trust, but to, to stand in for trust. I, I think what I'd like to change about business, especially enterprise business, is that individual actors in the, in the uh, framework of an organization should increasingly act as if they represent the ethics and, and values of that organization. Not that they can hide behind what the organization stands for. Because a, a lot of what people do is, this is how our company works. If you want to deal with us, you, 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 you take it or you, or you can go, right? And I think increasingly the players on the team should help to define the rules of the team rather than just the, a, a small group at the top of the team in, in the way they deal with other people. And uh, that's a norm in, in a lot of small business, which is why a lot of people are drawn to the idea of opening up a bakery or opening up a, uh, a little corner store because you can play by those rules with the people that you're dealing with. It becomes harder when you have a larger organization because you can hide behind somebody else's ethics or lack thereof. What's the best piece of advice you were ever given? Um, it comes down to recognizing that you will make mistakes and not beating yourself up for it, you know? And then likewise, once you learn to have that empathy for yourself not beating up other people when they make mistakes. That is basically the difference between why my business is succeeding today and why it struggled four or five years ago. Are you a big reader? Yes, I am. I love reading. The reading I do mostly is around psychology. And um, I rarely ever read any business books, but it's mostly psychology books. It's mostly books dealing with narcissism, dealing with uh, the ego. Because the only person you're, you're really managing is yourself. And, and inherently, I, I, I got into this line for all the wrong reasons. Uh, I almost gave it up. And then I realized you don't have to, you don't have to stop doing it because you've gotten for the wrong reasons. You can, you can find the right reasons to stay in it. You know? So I, I'm in this business for very different reasons from, from compared to what I got in for. And all I'm doing is I, I'm using business as a mechanism to bump into problems that I need to learn how to solve about myself. And that comes from a lot of books in psychology. Hmm. 
Well, we normally ask what your top three business reads are, but perhaps we should ask you what your top three psychology reads are. <laughs> yeah, they're they also my top three business recommendations. I think the number one book I'd recommend is How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. <laughs> it's a book on drugs. Yeah, it's a book on drugs. Um, when you change your mental state and you're able to change your perspective, and you can do this in many different ways, um, but for a lot of people, they may not have the patience to go through things like meditation or being, you know, or, or, or traveling and, and, and being mindful when you travel, which actually allows you to get into the mindset of the people around you. Uh, when, when those techniques fail, which is the case for most high-strung, uh, very busy business executives, then there are shortcuts to changing your mental state in a manner that allows you to experience new points of view. And empathy basically is just a different point of view from another person, right? I, th I think that is what business is. Business is, is the act of dealing with strangers all the time. Most of the deals you do will be with strangers who you met less than a year ago or two years ago. In the grand scheme of things, those are strangers to us. And learning how to empathize with them and to understand where they're coming from, how not to trigger them, because everyone can be a good person when they deal with you. But you can also trigger bad people and other people, even if they want to be a good person with you. You, you can say or do certain things that, that bring out or remind them of certain aspects. And so I think um, this, this awareness and this uh, perspective is, is, is missing in a lot of people. And uh, there is a fast forward to achieve that. It is not the same as going through life and, and, and building it up over life experiences, but yes, there's a... So I think change, how to change your mind is one, which also reminds you that your current mind state or your perspective is not the only way in life. Like th that itself is a realization that most people don't have, you know, so you've got to go through that first. I think psychedelics, um, and they're now being recognized by, you know, you can read about it in the new scientists yeah. every month. I mean, ketamine is a psychedelic and they're using it for depression, but, you know, the true psychedelics, the mushrooms and stuff, if you look at their importance in human history, you know, there's arguments that they triggered some of our change in thought and thinking. If you look at, yeah, what's made in Peru, which is a, a natural thing developed over thousands of years from all these different plants and barks, you know, it's the, yeah. the, the key ingredient DMT, which is natural in your yeah. body. I mean, I think, yeah. I think psychedelics shouldn't be cataloged along with the word drug because drug has become yeah. this word which encapsulates um, heroin and, you know, very addictive yeah. drugs, very sedative drugs or stimulants, you know. Yeah. Psychedelics don't affect your heart, you know, they, 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 and microdosing, which has become so popular in America, you know, small amounts of them, you know, do show that, you know, people, and what you're talking about changing your mind states, I think is fascinating. You use the word trigger too, you know, I'm fascinated by psychology and I think that's so true. We have, things that trigger us, things that resonate with us. So, you know, things we care about and things that set us off, you know, we just get fucking angry. Um, and I think, yeah. you know, whether it be marijuana or psychedelics or just as you say, traveling and having a break, give you that ability to sort of re-look at a situation without being driven by these triggers, which are generally connected to the ego or something, aren't they? Something yeah. from your past yeah. that you're angry or you found really difficult and you just, all this emotion comes up, you know, and, and you act, react. So... Um, yeah, I, I hope that conversation develops and doesn't um, doesn't get rooted down into sort of well, they're all drugs. It's like 
No, they're yeah. not. Yeah. There's some really different things here. And yeah, you know, yeah. if you take a lot of acid, you might do something crazy, you know, maybe. But, you know, it's yeah. unlikely to. You'll probably just sit there quietly thinking, bloody hell. But, you know, their, their effect on, you know, if you take, what, what's the most stuck in a rut thing? Things like alcoholism. You know, ayahuasca is incredibly effective at getting people out of alcoholism. If you can manage to get an alcoholic to go do ayahuasca, it's, it's the, you know, because you have a very intense sort of two-hour trip where you kind of see yourself from someone else's perspective. You know, you kind of, I mean, you could take two points of view with ayahuasca. Some people say it was religious and everything, but we have two brains, a left and a right brain. And it would seem to me, if you wanted to be scientific, that it allows the left brain to talk to the right brain in a, in a sort of much more conscious conversation. So it's a bit like someone communicates with you in an intelligent manner who knows you as well as yourself, but knows different things about you than you're normally consciously aware of. Um, and, and that has it. So it's a bit like you, your alcoholic's been sitting in his right hand side of his brain. He's completely blinded by the alcohol. He's completely addicted. And suddenly this thing lifts the veil and he gets to see see himself or herself from the perspective of someone else that you're a very sad addicted not this thing that's doing it to you you can have that enough of a mental shift enough of a paradigm shift to say wow i'm not doing this anymore yeah just tell us before we go on to the quick fire list luke give us a couple more psychology books of choice sure well the the second one would be um the five dysfunctions of teams i can't remember the name of the author fantastic book on how to engage with people and it's tough for me to pick the third one because there's, there's many names coming to mind some of the names coming to mind are the courage to be disliked which is just a i think i think everyone needs to read that book because that, that's what business is it, to to a large extent you to be okay with a lot of people disliking you and you got to push for your mission basically right because people it's not that people dislike you they, they dislike what you might represent and anyway it's a very interesting book around being okay with being disliked. I need to read that book because you, you, I've got better as I've got older, but you, you know, you can't dance with all the girls. You can't please everyone. And if you do try and please everyone, you just end up as this sort of bland beige wedge of lard. If you try to meet everyone's expectations, you literally, literally have achieved average, right? That's average. And business is about being above average. So you cannot make everybody happy. You have to choose the audience that you want to connect with. The, the third book, it's a book that's not very intellectual, but I think that it's a, it's a good read because it supplies um, easy to understand metaphors for how to work with our brain. Uh, it, it's called The Chimp Paradox. It's a British author. I can't remember his name either, but I love that book because it, it is one of the least um, intellectual or academic psychology reads you can you can get. But it just takes these complicated ideas and gives you very simple metaphors to understand them through, you know, simple analogies to understand them through. And I, I think it's great for anybody that um, wants to manage themselves, wants to manage a team. And, and if you're raising kids, you're even better. There's, I think there's even a, a kid's version of it. Okay. I'm going to just run through those books, just partly for myself, but also for anyone listening as well. And there are actually four You've mentioned four, but, you know, that's good. So the, the first book was the Poland book, How to Change Your Mind. The second book was The Five Dysfunctions of Teams. The third book was The Courage to be Disliked. And the fourth book was The Chimp Paradox. I think we're getting a kind of picture of you, Luke, there. <laughs> <laughs> you are what you read. So let's do our Business v. Bullshit quickfire list. Andy is going to read... 
these things to you and you are to say whether they are business or bullshit. All right, so here we go. We're off, we're off. Uh, quotas. Bullshit. Stand-up meetings. Business, yeah. yeah. Walking desks. Bullshit. Uh, standing desks. Bullshit, yeah. Coffee. Bullshit. It's a drug, yeah. Agendas. Business. Yeah. yeah. One-hour meetings. Business. There are, there are cases for one-hour meetings, yeah. Office dogs. Bullshit. <laughs> Slogans on the wall in the workplace. Business. It, it inspires people. It captures ideas. Yeah. Pub lunches. Business. Well, correct. Let's people connect. Yeah. <laughs> There's yeah. only one answer <laughs> yeah. to that one. Yeah. Suits. Business, yes. It gives people a certain courage that they may not normally have. It standardizes the cast. Exercising. Business. It clears the mind. Very good. All right. Well, great stuff, Luke. Now, if people want to uh, find out more about you and what you do and about your business, how would they go about doing that? Well, Andrew Uri being a fantastic accountant knows quite a lot of it, but they should not contact him. They should contact us. And the best way to find us is just, just connect with me on LinkedIn, Luke Sequera. Okay. And if I've got a road that I want to charge people to use, you're the man. Definitely, yeah, definitely. If you, if you want to toll your country, if you want to track your people. I want, to, I want to toll my country and track my people, even though neither are mine to toll or track, but I'd still want to get 5p every time one crosses the road. Right, um, so Luke Sequeira, thanks very much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. And there you have it, folks. That was this week's episode of Business Without Bullshit. Thanks uh, to Luke once again. Thank you to you, dear listener, for listening and, and for staying the course. And we'll be back again with another episode in a fortnight in the in the meantime please do rate and review us on apple spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts and remember to follow us on instagram twitter facebook whichever your your social media death knell of choice is and the symbol is at biz without bs at biz without bs where you'll find more helpful business content you can also subscribe to our youtube channel by searching for us using the hashtags biz without bs or ori clark uh, i am dominic frisbee i was about to say i've been dominic frisbee but i remain dominic frisbee until next time it is cheerio business without is brought to you by ori clark We've been helping individuals and businesses cut through red tape in order to prosper since 1935. To find out how our team of multidisciplinary experts can help you, whatever your needs, email us at contact at auriclark.com. That is contact at O-U-R-Y-C-L-A-R-K.com or via our website. Ori Clark, you provide the questions, we'll give you an answer.